watchers in the fourth dimension. Too late for all the meddling fools. I look forward to your terror, Corby. Never trust a man as well as I. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And don't e-grandma me. This episode, we're heading back to contemporary Earth for the first time since we said goodbye to Sarah in the Hand of Fear, as we contend with an ancient evil in Image of the Fendal. But before we get into that, we're going to do the usual thing and take a quick look at the mail, which is with Riley this episode. Over to you, my friend. Thank you. Let's start off with some general feedback from Charles Martin, who says, I haven't sung your praises in a little while, so here we go again. Love this podcast. Everyone's great. I appreciate your opinions, even if I don't completely agree. How is that even possible? I don't know, Charles, but I like it. Thank you so much for (laughs) giving us that wonderful compliment. And then we have several responses for our season 14 retrospective. First up is Nick Rutherford, who says it is a toss-up between this and 13 as my desert island season, but I think I'd go with Julie and choose 13 as it has more of my favorite stories, but 14 as a very close second as it features my favorite companion, Leela. I see that you are also a man of taste. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. And Boris says, I just finished watching the four new Who specials, and I think they added more to the Philip Hinchcliffe woman count. Then the entire Tom Baker run. <laughs> oh, wow. Woo! <laughs> Tony Monticello says, Much like with season 13, it is impossible for me to be objective when ranking. These were my formative years, the foundation on which all other Doctor Who is built, and I love each and every story to pieces. One standout scene I'd add to the best of list is when the Doctor threatens to kill the seven team warrior with a jelly baby in the face of evil. When his bluff is called, he responds with, quote, I don't take orders from anyone and eats it. Comedy gold. <laughs> yes, we definitely like our fourth doctor more in that mold and not the angry, angie mode. Yes. Astrozan Zangelbert Zebulon says, I love the metrics. Bring them on. You should stretch it out by 10 more minutes to torture Riley and Julie. Don't give Anthony any ideas. Nope. No <laughs> more. Strike him from the responses. Astrazon, Dangelbert, Zebulon, you're dead to me. Remove him. My boy, Astrazon. Okay. Adam Wright says, I think my attachment to Jago and Lightfoot makes me lean on Talons as my number one. When I was learning of Classic Who in 2018, this season was my start because I was going to Hoodlanta, aw, for the first time and saw Louise Jameson would be there, so I wanted to get familiar with her time on the show. In person, her radiant smile and striking blue eyes were the perfect invitation to this fandom. Robots, face, and hand all stand out for a good rewatch. This season is a standout to me of the definitive ingredients of Doctor Who. Well said. I don't know if I could disagree with that at all. Our good friend Alan Seiler says, What a great season. Even the lowest ranked story, Mask of Mandragora, is still pretty good. And by my reckoning, there are three true classics, maybe even masterpieces in it. Hinchcliffe ended on a strong season. That's, once again, very true, I believe, and I think we're kind of feeling that now as we're into this season. (laughs) Yes, yes, we are. All right. Citrine Dragonfly, also known as Cat, says, I really enjoyed this episode and how much in accord you all are. I can't disagree with any of your calls. It's a solid season that says goodbye to a beloved companion and hello to an equally amazing one. 
I can't wait to hear your thoughts going into season 15. I'm so glad to have you back in my feed regularly. Well, thank you very much. Very sweet. Austin D. Patterson has an interesting response. Let's see if I can tackle this. He's explaining why Babs wasn't on the list of badass women he was excited for us to meet. So I'll begin. At the risk of being accused of blasphemy, because yes, Barbara is best. All hail the history queen. I should explain that I was in the middle of my first watch through of Color Classic Who when I discovered you guys last year. And that's when I started making notes of the badass women I'd like you to meet. Believe me, if I counted all the badass women I love from Classic Who, you get a very long list from the black and white era, including Babs, Faria, Miss Kelly, Sarah Kingdom, and most of all, my favorite cosplay, MAGA. I really hope, and I haven't dug through Austin's Facebook, but I hope there is a photo of him in full cosplay as MAGA somewhere. Yes, that would be good. That'd be very good. Also, that is a lot of badass women. (laughs) Yeah. It is, and a lot of times where I had to say badass women. So (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we have some responses to our Big Finish Destination Nerva recording. So first up is Chris Nelson, who says, I loved this launching point for the fourth Doctor's audio adventures. The sound effects and other familiar Ark and Space callbacks were very well done. Nice to get a bit of Nerva beacon history. And J.M. Casey says, I liked the Lost Stories box set that came out around this time more than most of these original Fourth Doctor audios, although none of them were really bad. Poe from the Future and Valley of Death from the box set were, to me, a lot more interesting stories than this was. And I do agree with Julie. Tom doesn't quite sound, quote, into it yet, and I think he gets there later, though I couldn't tell you exactly when the transition happens. I'm sure we will probably get to the point where Tom is into it. But for now, it's the end of the mail. Back to you, Anthony. Thank you, Riley. And as a reminder to our listeners, we really do love getting your feedback, thoughts, comments, and questions. And as you've just heard, we do try to read out as many as possible on the show. So please do get in touch. You can contact us through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or the platform formerly known as Twitter, at (laughs) at Watches4D, or you can email us at Watches4D at gmail.com. Diving behind the scenes with Image of the Fendal. The genesis of this one starts with script editor Robert Holmes being extremely impressed with writer Chris Boucher's work on two consecutive stories the previous season, The Face of Evil and The Robots of Death. In fact, he was so impressed that when it became known that Holmes was on his way out of Doctor Who and he was offered the script editor role on Blake 7, he turned it down and suggested Boucher instead. But... Before Boucher could go off and do that, Holmes and producer Graham Williams commissioned Boucher for one last Doctor Who script, Image of the Fendal. For his scripts, Boucher was heavily influenced by the 1967 film version of Quatermass in the Pit, so we're back to vicious Quatermasturbation here, which involved a group of scientists discovering an ancient skull that was older than humanity. He also remembered a short story he had read about aliens accelerating humanity's evolution for their own purposes. And Boucher also considered this to be an opportunity to write a Doctor Who ghost story. Anyway, as he got working on Blake 7, he found his time very quickly diverted away from work on Image of the Fendal. With Holmes on his way out, incoming script editor Anthony Reed performed many of the final rewrites on the scripts. One of Reed's responsibilities was to address the addition of K-9 to the TARDIS crew. With Boucher unfamiliar with the character, Reed was left to provide a small amount of material for the robot dog at the beginning and the end of the serial. 
Boucher, still being relatively new to script writing, inadvertently included several night scenes in his scripts without realizing that there was additional expense and production needs associated with night shoots. Instead of telling Boucher to revise his scripts, producer Graham Williams assigned the serial to an experienced director so that the sequences could be completed as efficiently as possible. The director chosen was George Spenton Foster, who had directed episodes of Sutherland's Law when Williams had been the script editor. New to Doctor Who, but a veteran director, he had also handled episodes of Out of the Unknown, Survivors, and of course, Zed Cars. Yay! <laughs> would it be Watchers in the Fourth Dimension without a mention of Zed Cars? <laughs> and he would also go on to direct for Blake Seven, which was starting to enter production at this point. Tom Baker is on record as describing George Spenton Foster as, and I quote, a lovely camp old thing. <laughs> so we might get some camp count points just for the director. Joining him behind the scenes, the team also included now resident composer Dudley Simpson, surprise, surprise, designer Anna Ridley, who's making her first and only contribution to the show. She's quite notable for eventually working on Chariots of Fire. We also have the first contribution of costume designer Amy Roberts, who will return to the show on a further five occasions after this. She's also had quite an impressive career, which has included episodes of 1990, Ultraviolet, that is the late 90s British vampire TV show, Upstairs Downstairs, Call the Midwife, and most recently, The Crown. So she's still working to this day. Wow. Yeah. This was right at the beginning of her career. And of course, JNT continues his tenure as production unit manager, but more on him another time. As pre-production on the serial proceeded, costume designer Amy Roberts deemed Leela's costume to be in need of replacement, having been in use for nearly a year. Williams initially wanted to simply have a replica constructed, but he eventually agreed to proceed with a new, more form-hugging design. For this serial, <laughs> Jameson wore her hair up, which happened because a BBC stylist cut her hair a little shorter than it should have been. Now, when the serial was completed, production actually went very smoothly for this one, but it was originally meant to be the fourth story of season 15 in both recording and broadcast order. But it was eventually moved into third in the transmission schedule and was broadcast between October 29th and November 19th, 1977, as usual on Saturdays. And that wraps up our behind the scenes and takes us into this episode's short summary and... That's with me this time round, because that has to happen sometimes. We land on contemporary Earth, where a dysfunctional group of scientists have discovered an impossibly old skull. One of these scientists apparently knows exactly what he's found and delusionally wants to try to use it to obtain... power? <laughs> what will he do when he's achieved his goals? Who knows? Writer Chris Boucher also gives us a hodgepodge of different esoteric and occult ideas involving von Danikanism, tarot, salt, pentagrams, covens, and the memento mori without even trying to weave them together into any sort of coherent philosophy. Thanks, Chris. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Leela show up, barely interact with any of the scientists until the very final episode before saving the day by blowing everything up. Oh, and Benedict Cumberbatch's mum is in this. What? What? Is that the grandma? No, it was Thea <laughs> Ransom. That's Wanda Ventham. That's why she looked familiar. I was like, why do I know this person? Yeah. So let's jump into talking about this one. Part one. And I've done lots of speaking, so I'm going to let you guys go. First and foremost, there was a woman in the first scene. Yes. Shocking. Amazing. <laughs> and it's Wonderful. Benedict Cumberbatch's mum. <laughs> and then we get a time when a guy 
tells another guy to smile when nowadays it's men trying to tell women to smile because they'll look more beautiful. So I was actually kind of I don't know why I latched onto it, but I did. Well, I imagine, Julie, you have probably been told to smile once or <laughs> twice in your time. So I can see why one dude telling another to smile might make you happy. I completely understand. But first and foremost, the night shoots. I want to talk about that. Okay. Because we keep getting the shots of that man running through the forest. And I... Oh. <laughs> which, okay, I don't understand why we kept getting the man running through the forest. But the shot itself, I think they did do a good job of finding someone who could do night shoots because I enjoyed the night shoots. Yeah, they went well. Homeboy outside at night. <laughs> Firstly, he is simply credited as Hiker, so he doesn't even get a name in the Aww. script. So He was cute guy. too. <laughs> <laughs> I also noticed he was whistling The Entertainer, which is, you know, a bit of a break because normally it's Colonel Bogey's March. Also, this is 1977. Yep. I think The Sting may have come out, which heavily used that as their theme, if I remember correctly, that movie. I think you're right. Yes. But see, this is, I'll point out now, we're talking about this. What, what have we got so far in part one? We have scientists talking, a skull... Other two scientists talking in a different room, and things start building, and then there's a grandmother, and then there's a guy running around the forest that we don't see what's bothering him. How long does it take for us to find the Doctor and Leela in this? I actually wrote this down. It's at six <laughs> minutes 40 by the time they show okay. up. It felt like 15. <laughs> I wrote it down as well, Anthony. Yeah, far too long. Yeah, this is a perfect example when I think about robots of death and how it does take a little bit of time for the Doctor and Leela to show. But, but it does a great job of developing the background, the characters. It tells us what's going on. All I know watching this is that Colby is an annoying little shit. That's all I know. There's no other information given. I don't know what's attacking this person. I don't even understand how they can power a skull from another room and it's not plugged into anything. It's really just kind of a mess. But I will say what made those first 18 minutes truly entertaining for me, and I'm not joking, and I don't know how this reflects on the serial, but for my poll quote at the opening of our episodes, I felt like I had at least seven options just in the first 18 <laughs> minutes of the serial alone. And yes, the smile line was one of them, Julie. There are two things I want to talk about as we get into this. Firstly, Riley, you mentioned the Doctor and Leela finally showing up. We get a new costume for Leela. Now, she probably looks like she's going to Coachella, but <laughs> what's the overall feeling on this? Julie, I'll let you begin. I'm sure you have a view. My biggest view is actually on the hair. Yes! Okay, well, let's start with that. Yeah. <laughs> it looks so bizarre to have her it's hair weird. up the entire time. I don't like it. And am I wrong? It looks like her hair was lightened in color. It did, yeah. Yes. It really did. It doesn't seem to like rectify itself until, I think, episode four. Right when they're back in the TARDIS control room, which I can't wait to get to that scene. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I can't wait to get to that scene, but it seems like they must have filmed that after her hair had grown out and they fixed it or something, but it was definitely off throughout. Yeah, and I definitely feel like maybe it's a little lightened, but it might also be she's wearing a lighter costume. And that uh, kind maybe, of emphasizes maybe. the hair in a different way. Not sure. Well, and sometimes if you have it up in a certain way and the light shines through it, it could be uh, a little bit yeah. lighter. But in the outfit itself, it's just not a great outfit. It's boring. I yeah. agree. I was really enjoying her 
showing up in different outfits, giving her something else to like fit in. It's just, it was more fun that way. And I'm granted, maybe that's too expensive to get a new costume, but well, this is a new costume. So what the hell? <laughs> Give her a lab coat to fit in with everybody else in this serial. Speaking of lab coats, let's talk about the scientists. Ugh. You've already mentioned <laughs> Adam Colby. Yes. We have Thea Ransom, aka Mama Cumberbatch, mm-hmm. who we don't really get to know. Correct. No. At all. I'm very sad. I really wish we'd seen more of her because by the time she is taken over, I don't really give a shit. <laughs> You're not wrong. We have Max right. Stahl, who... From the get-go is a creeper. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. We've seen the actor before. He was one of the gorillas in Day of the Daleks. Oh, okay. And we have Dr. Fendelman, and I can't quite tell what his accent's meant to be. <laughs> uh, French, German, Eastern European... Maybe she seems to Mexican. travel around. I know. Who the it fuck goes. knows? <laughs> and see, all these, the, I don't know what it was, but these four, how they interact amongst each other, how stiff and weird it all feels, and then also having no idea what the hell they're doing with that skull and how they're able to power it on from another room. It gave me some strong Garth Marenghi vibes. <laughs> yes. Yes, and, it does. By the way, it just celebrated its 20th year anniversary, just like two days ago was its premiere what? 20 years ago. Yeah, so happy anniversary. But now we have experienced what it feels like to watch the Doctor Who version of Garth Marenghi, apparently. Yeah, we've often talked about when we have kind of awkward interactions between small insular groups of characters that they're probably all sleeping with each other. <laughs> My theory on this one is that Thea is the only one not sleeping with the rest of them. Yes, please. Yes. <laughs> A couple things. With the accent, first off, it sounds the most German when he just says Stahl's name. Yeah. Stahl. Yeah. Stahl. And then other times I'm like, I have no idea what you're doing, man. I was crying out for a nothing in the world can stop me now. (laughs) If only Stahl had been German. Yes. And I have the biggest plot hole of this entire thing, guys. And this is very, very important. We get introduced to Leaky the dog. Okay. (laughs) Yes. All right. It's the worst name for a dog. I'm sorry. That is so mean. It's so mean to name a dog Leaky. But then we do not find out if Leaky survives. We don't see Leaky again. It's almost like he's a total plot contrivance to find Homeboy's body. (laughs) I'm so mad. I'm so mad about this. I wanted to see more puppy and I didn't get to see more puppy. Well, here's some good news. I read that the big finish will have the adventures of Leaky the dog coming out this fall. Featuring Jackie Tyler. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay. So we're in agreement there. Great. Yes. Yes. Wonderful. Thanks, everyone. And then there's cows because cows. So the doctor and Leela eventually get there and they land in a field of cows. And I love the doctor's reaction where he just says, good morning, ladies. Now, which one of you has the time scanner? That was really funny. It was good. It was lovely and charming. And then we run into another very interesting kind of off-putting character, Ted Moss, which at the beginning when we meet him, we're like, oh, he's just a very simple man living his life overwhelmed by these two strangers asking him strange questions and feeling threatened with a knife at his throat. Didn't know he was an occultist. That really threw me. And he packs a shotgun too. Also surprising. The occult thing came out of nowhere for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's back to the demons, isn't it? It's like a bunch of country bumpkins practicing the occult. But at least they did a better setup in the demons with the occultists. 
Because this was, oh, hey, pentagram, boom, occultists. Right. What? <laughs> I mean, it does lead me to wonder, you know, how many little English villages really do have I'm little occult too. societies. Yeah. But guess what we did get? What did we get? A jelly baby. We did. Oh, plus yeah. one. I will say this for the serial. The doctor is not grumpy. No, he's much better, this serial, particularly contrasting with Horror of Fang Rock. Right. Just doesn't like lighthouses, what can I say? Leela's very murdery in this episode. I, hey, that's my favorite type of Leela. <laughs> she almost killed Ted Moss. She wants to kill the security guard. And I love how the doctor says, no, you'll upset the dog. <laughs> yeah, that's good. It's been a while for her. The Leela yearns for some blood. It's basically like, you'll upset the dog. And also, by the way, I would like you to maybe murder a bit less, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh... We haven't talked about our two country yokels. Grand. Oh, yes. Ma Tyler and Jack Tyler. Right. Jack shows up at the very end of one, right? The, as the cliffhanger of part one. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yes. Because he then comes in behind on Lilo. Well, yeah. Jack at first seemed a little iffy, but actually he is surprisingly our good bumpkin. Yeah. And of course, so is the grandma. Our yokels are pretty awesome on this. They kind of help out and contribute. And they're not a cultist. A big plus. And Gran gets a pretty good theme that's given to her by our good friend Dutters. So that was nice. To be fair, <laughs> Ma Tyler is a witch. I mean, I think she's meant to be in the Miss Hawthorne vein where she's one of the good ones. Right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But yeah, honestly, this kind of ends abruptly with zero context as to what's going oh. on. Because <laughs> we have some fucking around with Fendelman's equipment, and obviously no good's ever going to come of that. Particularly when the Doctor and Leela are out in the woods where Homeboy died. They still haven't really interacted with anyone other than Ted Moss. The skull starts glowing, and then we get a POV shot of something approaching the Doctor, and that's our cliffhanger. Right. That's it. I cannot imagine watching this at the time and having to wait a week to still not find out what's going on. <laughs> anyway, part two. Yep, that is true. Ted Moss packing heat. Well, Ted Moss packing heat. And then they do a little thing where they don't quite do exactly what was done in the recap because they have the doctor doing the whole leg thing. Yeah, yeah. they added that. That was strange. <laughs> And one thing I noticed with this story in general is it's a larger cast than we're used to, because on top of all the people that we've already talked about, there's also like that one guard that they have. Mm, right. And then a few more occultists show up and I'm like, I can't keep track of everyone, y'all. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, most of those occultists that do show up are non-speaking extras, though. So honestly, yeah. we don't need to care about them. Still, there's a lot of characters <laughs> compared to a lot of other stories. Yeah. Yes. But hey, we get to find out where the owl hooting is coming from. It's coming from inside the house, apparently. I don't know if anyone saw the owl in that scene where Ted Moss is packing heat. It's right there in the room. No, so Ma Tyler keeps an owl. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah, very cool. She's a witch. Yes. And then going back to what you were saying, Anthony, about not seeing anything, knowing what's going on, I believe they should have titled this serial The Invisible Enemy. Ooh. <laughs> They're really the invisible leeches. Yes. Yeah. When we hear one approaching the security guard, it's like squelching. It's all of mm. those sounds I know you hate, Riley. Yes, it's yeah. <laughs> turned up really high in the mix, too. Can't just yep. let that be a little quiet and subtle. No, you got to really crank that up. I was watching it knowing that you were sitting there going, Ugh. 
Anyway, the Doctor breaks into the house and has his first interaction with the guest cast. And by that, I mean the scientists. Only 30 minutes later. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't really interact with any of them again until part four. And arguably, the interaction isn't much. It's just Findelman having his goons lock him away. That's it. Yeah. No conversation. Just point a gun, get him in there. Lock him in a cupboard. What else are you going to do with him? I don't know. There's just a lot of weirdness going on. All the one thing I do have to love is when Leela is having a conversation with Mother Tyler and they're chatting about things and she says that the doctor is gentle and then it pans immediately to the doctor kicking an empty box. Yes, and throwing his sonic. Yeah. The humor was all right. The humor definitely made this a bit more bearable. And then I believe we barely barely get a little bit of plot reveal or background reveal here where at least we're told that it's some sort of ancient aliens eric von daniken kind of shit going on here yep which is still not the full story just a backstory and it's still not very well explained at all i know we do eventually get explanations for everything but do we though (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we do. We, we get do. an explanation as to how the skull absorbs power, where it came from. Yeah, that's all in there. But it's certainly not until, if not part three, then part four that we really find right. anything about. And really, arguably, I feel like part four is the only, other than the introduction of our characters and putting them somewhat together in parts one and two, part four is really where everything happens. Yeah. Like, oh, you yeah. could just you could just cut this sucker, you know, rip out like half of it, and you could probably get this thing done in... 45 minutes, 50 minutes tops. It's funny, too, when I got halfway through part two, which is when Stahl talks to Ted Moss, and I'm like, wait, excuse me, it's a coven? What? (laughs) It just felt so shoehorned in. It confused me so much. Yeah. Speaking of things that are confusing. (laughs) Oh, boy. Who let the doctor out of the cupboard? Got out, didn't unlock. It unlocks and it opens, but it wasn't the doctor that did it. Who let him out and why? And that is something that is never... It was Leaky never... the dog. <laughs> <laughs> yes, boom. Apparently so. <laughs> That's what I'm going to say because I have no better explanation. What also confused me was when the uh, she leaves and she's going to ask someone for help. It took me a little bit to understand that she was actually trying to get help from the doctor. Yes. I was very confused. I'm like, who is she asking help from? Who? What, what is going to happen? And then nothing happened. I was like, well, that was disappointing. And then, unfortunately, she runs into Stahl, who is a lunatic. He channels his inner creeper real hard (laughs) and really well. I don't necessarily like him, but oh man, that man is doing a great job at what he's supposed to be doing right now. Yeah, (sighs) it was a good creepy performance. Absolutely in agreement on that. He comes across as a megalomaniacal nutter. It's awesome. Mm -hmm. One thing I have to say is the house reminded me in some aspects of the house from the Seeds of Doom. I know it's not, but it reminds me of it. The outside of the house and the grounds were the same one as from the Pyramids of Mars. That's, yes, there it is. Okay. Yeah, the outside was Stargroves, which was Mick Jagger's house. Oh, cool. I obviously want to talk about the pentagram. Okay. Of course you do. Because, mm-hmm. ooh, pentagram must be a cult. <laughs> <laughs> And then we get the explanation of saying, well, all of this symbolism is really just because this came to us from an alien culture. Oh, fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck off with your Von Danikinism. No one cares. I know. It's lazy. Yeah. Yes. Also, I like that they refer to 
I think it's Thea as the chosen one. I'm like, there's no Harry Potter here. <laughs> what are we talking about? And once again, there's just nothing there to provide any sort of idea of what direction we're going into. When she gets, I wouldn't even say she got hypnotized. I couldn't really tell when she would have those moments where the skull would be superimposed in her face or not. Like, there's no clear evidence of or inclination as to, is it hypnotizing her? Is it putting her to sleep? Is it making her high? Is it becoming part of her? I guess that was the answer, but I had no freaking clue what was going on. So it's just, once again, all these scenes where there's just, I understand we don't want the show to give all the answers all up front all at once, but you've got to leave some sort of breadcrumb so we can have an understanding of what's going on. If we're just doing this and there's no, you know, context to it is just, what is it? This feels like an early draft. Yep. Boucher was starting to pivot his attention to Blake Seven. Robert Holmes was leaving. And so poor Anthony Reed, who hasn't been in the job for five minutes and doesn't even get a credit on this story, has to pick up the slack. I think there are some great ideas in this story. I think it really needed restructuring and it just didn't get the attention it deserved. And we'll come back to that as we go yeah, through it. But yeah. I do firmly believe that. I do firmly believe you could take the occult out and it would be perfectly fine. Mm hmm. Throwing that yeah. out there. Sorry, Anthony. Going back to the occult and the skull, when the doctor finds it, firstly, I love that he offers it a jelly baby because that was actually, you know, we're back to Bugs Bunny, Doctor. Yes. And, alas, poor skull. <laughs> Random Shakespeare reference. Yes, it has to be done. Had to be done. And we end with the doctor putting his hand on the skull once it starts glowing and he screams and that's our cliffhanger and he's still barely interacted with anyone. And we're into part three, and Tom Baker is gurning more, and I'm wondering if that's his sex face. Oh, God. <laughs> I hope not. Anthony, part why? Three. Why did you say that? Because I thought of it, so you guys now have to think of it, too. So Leela comes in and saves the day, and I love it. And he yep. actually admits that she saved his life. Thank you. Finally, she gets some credit, although he kind of destroys that at the end of part four, but we'll discuss that later. Yeah, he's kind of a dick about it, though. Not about saving her, but as soon as she says, I had a feeling something was wrong, he was really dismissive of that. And it's like, okay, you don't need to do that, buddy. You yeah. don't. But she does then tell him that he's very heavy. So, <laughs> Right. And I believe it is in part three where we get ourselves a 100 hours countdown that never comes up again. We're at 99 or does it? hours. It, 99 it kind hours? Of does. I think that's how really? they do the implosion at the end. But see, I thought that was Colby doing something that had nothing to do with them setting up that 99 hour thing. Well, and also, Leela mentioned that it could be any time within that 9,900 hours or whatever. Like, there's no indication that it started at X time. So you don't know when in that timeline you're at. And we cut to the lab and we see that it's at 99 hours. So there's an hour left and the doctor says something about it. If it reaches 100 hours, it'll be cataclysmic and destroy the world. It's word peril. Right, right. And, oh, I don't know. This actually is a part that was amusing me for a while. I felt like we had a moment in this serial where we have two competing villains that are working together but don't actually know what the other one is doing. <laughs> that they have their own different scheme going on at the exact same time. But you mean, um... <laughs> with Findelman and Stahl. Oh, Fentleman, I mean, he's ultimately harmless. Yeah, but, you know, he was showing some villain type of character. At the beginning, he's like, nah, don't worry, just hide that body. We don't need to notify the police. And he just carries a gun around. Right. 
casually like eating breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> and then he's like subtly threatening Colby with the whole, well, if I am insane, you should be humoring me. Yeah, it's weird because he is in the end kind of innocent in all of this. And we don't really know what his motives are beyond proving that this skull is really old. Well, I thought his goal, all right, like I said, <laughs> good God, it's just this plot is too convoluted. It really is just too much and it's just too detailed. And you need like a compendium just to handle the backstory of everything that we need to know before the story even begins to understand it, in my opinion. And if I remember correctly, Fendelman's goal was kind of like the goal in the movie Prometheus. He wanted to find the aliens that were our ancestors. And so therefore he was hoping that by powering up, throwing some bolts through the skull would reach out and connect to them. That's what his plan was. And I have a feeling, just like in something like Prometheus, he was one of those type of people, which would be a villainous play, who didn't care who got in his way. He would kill. He would do a lot of horrible things. That's why I believe he would be a villain as well. But he, in the end, we don't necessarily right. see all of that. Right. I think that's some very good explaining, Riley, but it would be nice to actually get more of that and get more of his motivation in yeah. the actual story. And instead, he's very, very quickly sidelined for Stahl's ambition to become a god. And I don't quite know why Stahl seems to think that this yeah. skull will imbue him with godlike powers. Yeah. It seems That's... like one hell of a reach. Yeah. Okay, a couple Agreed. other things that are very bizarre to me. Apparently, Grandma is consulted for her second sight, which, okay, weird thing for a scientist to consult a random person about. But okay, that's the first weird thing. Second weird thing is we get the first reference to the fifth planet, which goes into the how it all gets explained. And then I totally missed exactly where the doctor and Leela were planning on going. So when I just see Leela sleeping on the floor, I am very confused. <laughs> very confused. Yeah, she gets knocked out at some point. Well, it doesn't even show her getting knocked out. So I'm like, did she get knocked out? Was she just taking a nap? I have no idea. I think the implication is she got knocked out. I want to talk about the fifth planet, because when we go there, the doctor notices it's been held in a time loop and that it must have been done by the Time Lords. And he describes that act as criminal. Now, I want to take you guys back to season eight. What did the doctor do to Axos? <laughs> he put it in a time loop. You yeah. hypocrite doctor. <laughs> yes. And I'm sorry you have to walk me through this. Yes. This I freaking plot. So <laughs> the fifth planet is where the Fendal are from, correct? Yes. And the Fendal, their way of surviving that time loop trap or prison, whatever you want to call it, was to throw out a skull that ends up crash landing on Earth. That actually splits apart, if I do remember that correctly, and they had to piece it together in hopes that some crazy-ass person is going to then plug it in and try to turn it on. Yes. I mean, to be okay. fair, All right. it's okay. no less tenuous than Eldrad's survival in the Hand of Fear. Uh, I don't... I don't... Because Eldrad needed radiation to reform. Eldrad needed the hand to be found. And it was like, there's less than a, I don't know what it was, one in a billion chance that anything has survived. But Eldrad got blown out of the sky. That wasn't Eldrad's yes. intention. 
This is their intention of escaping prison was to throw a skull as hard as they could and have it shatter in hopes that people will jigsaw it together. I guess it's like any hope is better than being stuck in a time oh, loop for all eternity. Yeah. That's the best I've got. All right. I think I'm just gonna have to give up asking questions and bringing up this plot because it's just too much for me. <laughs> but yes, the skull catapulting through space is our race memory of astral projection. So check, check on the occult checklist. <laughs> so bad. We get tarot cards with Mrs. Tyler. So check. I love that though. That's fine. I love her. She's filling shotgun cartridges with salt. Check. This is the kitchen sink approach to <laughs> esotericism and occultism. And we get to finally see small English towns, lovely altars. As we know, all English towns have these lovely altars hidden somewhere. And this is another <laughs> decent one. Come visit England, rural England, for its lovely occult altars. That are just in the cellars. Yes, everywhere. Yep. It's fine. I also love that you got the crazy, crazy occultist standing there. And why is the organ such a good instrument for all these crazy people? Because it's ritualistic sounding. It sounds like ritual. <laughs> That's why. It does. It does. I do want to talk about Thea because Stahl takes her down to the basement, ties her up, continues to be creepy. You are the medium to which this place is focused injects her with something we never find out what she was injected with was it a sedative i don't know was it something that would expedite the transformation i don't know he just sticks a needle in her and injects something in just to really show that he's a bad guy and then says i'm gonna use you to attain godlike powers where is he getting this from <laughs> where's the playbook <laughs> Where's the playbook for this? This is like a stumble in the dark in the hope that whatever he's doing does that, but he has no idea, and yet right. he says it with such confidence and bravado. Yeah. And then let's keep in mind that the connection between our two arguably separate plot lines, the Findal and then the occult, is that our occultists are following some sort of spirits that they've been seeing, I guess, from the time distortion where the something happened. Yep. Because the skull didn't land there, it landed underneath a volcano somewhere in another continent, I believe in Africa. Right, but there are time <sighs> fishers that are just near the house because, because, and that's what's setting everything up. That's your kind of catch-all explanation for ghosts. Where there are ghosts, it's because there's a weak point in space-time. The reason that the skull can absorb power is because the time scanner is being focused at those fissures and generating a ton of energy. So that's the explanation that's given for that, Riley, because I know you were like, what the hell? And that is how they explain the spirits that they've been following. This is why I find this story very frustrating. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And then on top of that, to harp on again, the lack of Dr. and Leela, we are getting way too much Colby Findelman, whatever Findelson, whatever the hell his name is, as like a partnership more than Doctor and Leela sometimes. Yes. You know? And it's just, I'm hoping that they don't have a big finish spinoff of Colby and Findelson. <laughs> well, I <laughs> think that kind of got resolved with what happens to him, but... <laughs> so, Findelman eventually recognizes that his name is literally Man oh, of the God. Fendal. Oh, God. That was so dumb. Yes, because yes. <laughs> this girl clearly arrived in prehistoric times before man evolved. Its fragments or what have you influenced our evolution. How did anyone know 
no, about this thing in order to use Fendelman as a last name. Because you think about right. last names and Williams, which is my last name, is quite literally a contraction of William's son, which means son of William. But last names tend to be professions. They tend to be trades. They tend to be ancestral. This doesn't work as an explanation for a last name. No one is going to, out of nowhere, be like, Fendal. Oh, yes, Fendelman. Yes, we're men of the Fendal. None of these fuckers have heard of the Fendal. <laughs> I know. And then I don't know what would be worse, if we go that route, or that somehow the Fendal skull implanted that into someone's mind, like, you know what? I'm going to start calling myself Fendelson or Fendelman, whatever the hell. Like, what? No, no, don't do that. Yeah. Anyway. Are we towards the end now? Yeah, Fendelman kills Stahl off screen. Mrs. Tyler and Jack are in the house. Fear's in the pentagram. Yeah, Stahl kills Fendelman. Yeah. Other way around, yes. Yeah, Stahl yeah. kills Fendelman. Mrs. Tyler and Jack are in the house. There's an off screen gunshot. Fear's in the pentagram. It lights up. And at the end, we are left with one of the Fendeline approaching the doctor, yes! Leela, Mrs. Tyler, and Jack in the corridor, and none of them can move. Cliffhanger. Okay. Part four. So first off, it looks like it has pink hair. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and second off, why are all of these monsters in this season very impractical and can't move? I think they're just trying, uh, honestly, no kidding aside here, I think they're just trying to break out of the restrictions of having a costume that is the form of a human being. Yeah. I think that's it. They just wanted that variety. That's very difficult to yeah. do in 1977 on a BBC budget. But... It's still no excuse for having Snuffleupagus's detached trunk come around the corner wearing a cape, because that's what it looked like to me. Yes. Yes, it does. It's not good. But I do appreciate the goofiness, and man, are we about to get in a whole pile of goofiness in part four. Yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, it's really lucky that Mrs. Tyler loaded up that shotgun with salt. Perfect for slugs. I want to talk about Thea transforming, because firstly, once she's transformed, <laughs> she does the Nosferatu rise. Yeah. You know, which was pretty badass in Nosferatu in like 1921 or whenever it was. 1977, we've moved on a bit. You know, that whole transformation scene, I loved how kooky it was with the really bright gold and the whole blacking out of everything else around her as she lifts and starts turning and stuff and how shiny it was. It made me feel like I was watching a scene of Xanadu. That's yeah. what it looked like. Yeah. <laughs> and when she's transformed, we compared the robots of death to the angels on the Titanic in Voyage of the Damned. She also looks a bit like that. Yes, I could see that. I like her look actually. Oh, mm -hmm. I think it's great. I think it looks really cool. It's one of those situations where I'm sitting here like, okay, a lot of this is going bonkers, but hey, we have someone who looks good. We've got some good music going on. We have some good country yokels, but man, <laughs> everything else is a shit show. Yeah. Yeah. And I like her look too. I do like her look, but I was not a fan of the floaty dancey thing that she seems to be doing. That doesn't <laughs> appear very threatening to me. I feel like they could have made her a little bit more terrifying, and she could have been terrifying. I really do think so. Even in that look, it could have worked. Yeah, and what's interesting is that seems to be part of the process of transforming people into Fendeline. And it's once she starts doing that that Stahl realizes he has fucked up big time. <laughs> and when he says, this is not what this should be, the cord, or what was Thea, just smiles. Like, oh, that's really creepy to me. That was awesome. I was so, so excited when she smirked. Oh, that was yeah. beautiful. One of the best things of this whole serial. 
I dug it. And finally, we get the Doctor and Leela starting to interact with these scientists when they rescue Adam. Whose shirt somehow becomes unbuttoned. I don't know why that happened. He's not a pirate. I don't need to count his chest (laughs) in my chest count. I think it says a lot about the guy who played Adam that when you look him up on IMDb, he has all of 18 credits. Whoa. And most of them are extras. I mean, they're things like police inspector, immigration officer, manager, senior cashier. He did not have a particularly illustrious career after this. Okay, but I have the biggest question right now. Did the doctor actually give Stahl a gun so he could kill himself? Yes, he did. Yeah, what? I don't think Mary Whitehouse is going to be too happy about that, Anthony. I've seen this before, but I'd kind of forgotten about that. And I was very surprised by that. It doesn't seem to fit because there didn't seem to be a reason why he needed to be dead. So he didn't become a Fendaline. Well, yeah, yeah, but he could have just run, right? Oh, I thought he was paralyzed because he saw her eyes. Yeah, he was doomed. Yeah. He looked in her eyes, so he was about to be a Fendaline. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh... His destiny was fixed. So I kind of see why, but it doesn't quite sit right, does it? it? No, it doesn't. But I did understand something. I did. <laughs> you That's did. Great. I'm proud of you, Riley. <laughs> Thank you. God. You've come so far this story. I know. We're proud of you. Thank you. <sighs> oh, man. Boy. Yeah, I'm not kidding. I'm, I really am expecting next time we record next episode to hear Mary Whitehouse mention about <laughs> that because that was pretty dark. It's going to be a while. I mean, okay. you know, there's got to be time for production to catch up with what she's saying. Oh, okay. So if she does get upset, and I don't remember anything about that, but if she does, it won't be for a few stories that we hear about it. Okay, so a couple of things are happening, and the doctor starts putting a plan together. And then for some reason, Leela gives Adam a kiss on the cheek for what? Right. I mean, lucky Adam. She's barely interacted with him, and he almost got them killed. And he's been just shitty throughout, even with them after they rescue him. She's enjoying that unbuttoned shirt. That's what's going on. Okay. (laughs) All right. All right. (laughs) Can we go over the doctor's plan? (laughs) Yes, we can. Let's go over this part. At this point, okay, so things have been getting goofy and kooky, but then they seem to shift into overdrive here, where then it just things, even normal things, normal interactions start to become odd. The doctor gives his instructions to Colby, which started, I swear, because my head was spinning so much with the plot of the story that even I was like, okay, is it, wait, I turn on the beam for one minute, (laughs) then I turn it off, and then I count to three, and then I turn the thing on. It's like, what, what, what? But I do remember he said something about three minutes. And when he leaves and then comes right back and reminds Colby three minutes, he's holding up four fingers. (laughs) What the hell is going on? And that's the start of it. That is the start. I have a lot to say when we get to the very, very end. That's the start. And then it just seems to go crazy from there. But yeah. Anyway, please continue. Please continue, Riley, because I'm fascinated as to your perspective on this end. Okay. All right. (laughs) We have a very, I would argue, poorly composed shot when Leela and the doctor have sprayed salt everywhere, which that was cute. I did enjoy Leela doing that extra spiteful salt toss at the very end as they're leaving the little altar area. But then as they're trying to escape and the thing's about to explode for God knows what reason, we have a shot down the hallway where they're running towards the camera. And it took me a good 15 seconds for me to figure out what the hell is going on because, oh yeah, the transformed 
gold disco queen Fendaline was standing there, but because it was shot as transparent, it just doesn't look right. And it's the back of their head. So it's so hard to recognize what the hell it was. So I'm like, what's happening? What are they about to run into? What is that? And then they escape. And then once again, the doctor, after everything blows up and supposedly everything's fine. Well, before you get there. <sighs> oh, yes. Please right go before ahead. you get there is when they're running down the hall and they go past and then it goes to them immediately outside. And all of a sudden, Leela's not with the doctor. And he's having to oh, ask right. where she is. Like, how did she get separated him in the past five seconds? Yeah. I yeah. I really want to know this. This ending was so bizarre and okay. weird. And what kept Thea or the fend- what kept her from just leaving the area and running away? Nothing was keeping her inside. Arguably, she was shown as being transparent. Or is that just a mental projection by her? I don't know. <laughs> oh, God. And okay, let's just get into this. Out of all the oddness, that last scene in the TARDIS control room when they've fixed Leela's hair. Yeah. What the hell is going on? <laughs> what the hell is going on? Because it is the most unsettling ending scene I can think of that from this show. The doctor not finishing his sentence, almost like he couldn't figure out the words to say. Not that odd, but usually when the doctor's victorious, he's very sharp. Then not being able to remember K-9's name. And then when Leela points out that she called him him and she's very Mm -hmm. excited, suddenly her expression drops like she's just seen a ghost. And then there's a weird straight shot on the doctor. And then he has this most unnerving blank expression with no joy, no laughter, almost like someone's like put a gun to his head to where he's admitting to the fact that, well, he's my dog. And that's it. What was the fuck was going on there? <laughs> Seriously. That's probably because Tom Baker did not like having K9 around because he had to stoop down to be in shots with him. Okay. So that might have been that. I imagine Leela's expression was like, oh, have I gone too far in kind of rubbing oh, this in the doctor's okay. face? That was the read I got on that. But there was some tension there that was a bit odd. I just got frustrated because it reminded me of in the previous serial, I believe, when the doctor and Layla would have a conversation, Layla was right. He says that she was wrong. And then come to find out later that he's like, oh, well, I'm now saying the thing that you said before and I'm right now. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what happened here at the beginning mm-hmm. of the story. It was, oh, you can't call him a him. It's a they because we don't know if it's a him or a she, blah, blah, blah. You know, OK, great. So that's a good conversation to have. But then at the end, it's like him calling him him. And it's like, are you being a dick and doing that again, doctor? Yeah, he's just being petulant. Yes. It's very frustrating that he's not this way all the time, and he seems to be this way more so with Leela than he ever was with Sarah Jane. And it goes to a point of, is this how you want to end your serial? Like, it felt like they wanted it to be lighthearted and funny about the whole Dr. Calling K-9 him, but it just comes across as flat or just disjointed and you feel like, are they going to have an argument? Like, what? It's just such a, f- just a drop. It's just a drop. And I think it's of note that that final scene, as well as the very first scene in the serial, were not written by Chris Boucher. They were the two scenes written by Anthony Reed. So that kind of explains the tonal inconsistency. And I don't know, maybe they weren't happy that they had been written by someone else. And that kind of explains the, the weirdness about it. That's the best I got. 
it's funny because now I feel like watching just for the continuity's sake, I believe it was in The Invisible Enemy where they are about to have a straight up fight about the doctor wanting to leave the TARDIS and her saying, no, there's danger out there, don't go. And we go to other scenes, we come back and the doctor leaves the TARDIS with her. No answer as to how this, what was shaping up to be a proper fight was resolved. And now we have this oddness. Honestly, if I would feel watching the show that I'm expecting there to be a falling out between these two characters at this point, that's what it feels like. Yeah. The one thing we didn't touch on was the fact that the doctor drops the skull into a supernova, which is pretty brutal in and of itself as well. (laughs) Oh, and by the way, in case you're wondering, yes, according to Big Finish, the skull does survive the supernova and ends up elsewhere. And the BBC novels also did a book called The Taking of Planet Five. So Uh, there's a lot of lore from this that is revisited in other mediums. Anyway, Big Finish have maybe done three or four, I think, Fendal stories. This is one they were quite keen to pick at the corpse of. All right, before we rate this, anything worthy of the camp count? The Fendling costume, maybe? (laughs) Couple of points for that. Uh, I would say a maybe two. Not let's not two. push it. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm gonna give one point for the lovely old camp thing that was George Spence and Foster, according to Tom Baker. Right. Fair enough. That gives us a total of three for the story. We are going to move on and rate this. And Julie, it's your turn to go first. So after you, my dear. Oh boy, this is a weird story because I can't get a grasp of what's going on with the story. There are a few parts of it that I like. The music is well done. The outdoor scenes are shot well. There's a lot of bad going on. The story seems incomplete. However, when I think of it in comparison to some that we've watched thus far, I'm going to be a little bit kinder to it than I have in some of these others. So I'm going to give it three and a half (laughs) leeches with pink wigs out of ten. Wow. Okay. (laughs) I have to be honest, when you said you were going to be kinder, that's a little lower than I was expecting you to go. Riley, let's see what you've got. Um, yeah, I don't understand how a four episode serial can have or feel like it has this much filler. It feels like we spent two and a half episodes having absolutely no idea what's going on. I mentioned it before, but the audience needs a quick reference guide for the backstory to this story before you even start it, to even have a chance of comprehending it, to understand what's going on and appreciate it. And... Uh, what else can I say? The acting was above average, I think. The music was great. The direction was meh. The sets felt pretty standard for the show. The English manor house, a laboratory, and a cult altar. I think we can call that the classic who trifecta <laughs> when that happens. But I'll be frank, this one was setting up to come in around a three for me. But then the fourth episode came on, and it began to redeem itself because Everything is bizarre and odd, from the transformation into a golden Medusa Cleopatra thing with the slug monsters, to even the Doctor not being able to count on his hands. The serial really does feel like one of those crazy big finish stories that they would never put on camera. And in line with that, it probably should have been as short as a big finish story. So I'm going <laughs> to give this four, and I just made, barely made it there, and that would be four headless cobras out of ten. <laughs> wow. You guys are savage. I really want to like this one. I feel like there's a lot going for it. The sets are great. The cast I actually really enjoy. I mean, the fact that you kind of want to punch Adam and you kind of want (laughs) to punch Stahl means it's working. (laughs) I like the costumes. I even like the Fendaline. 
They're goofy, but I think they're pretty fun. It's the classic man in a rubber suit costume that you kind of associate with classic Doctor Who. I think the Fendal core, when Mama Cumberbatch transforms, that looks great. And Riley, you mentioned the music is pretty good. There was a moment when the organ just turned into this wonderful, like, discordant noise that sounded so awkward and weird and really unnerving. And I really liked that. The problem is, this feels like a first draft. It feels like there is the core, eh, get it, <laughs> of a good story here. But as I said earlier, with Boucher being like, all right, guys, I'm going to go work on Blake 7, Holmes being like, yo, peace out, and Anthony Reed doing his first work on this, it feels very unfinished. And I think it probably needed three or four more iterations to get to where it should have been. So I'm going to be a bit more generous than the two of you, because there are things I really like here, and give this one five skulls with random occult symbols carved into them out of ten, just because I want to like this more, which gives this story an average of 4.17. So it's still not the worst of the season, but ooh, this season is struggling so far. <laughs> That brings us to the end of the show. We will be back next time when we're going to talk about taxes in the Sunmakers. I wish I were lying. So oh, great. do join us for that. In the meantime, as always, thank you so very much for listening. I hope you found our conversation entertaining. And of course, until next time, have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Riley Shrek, Julie Philippek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Snuffleupagus's Detached Trunk, was recorded on Wednesday the 31st of January 2024. If this is your first time listening into the show, all of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can also interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and X at at Watchers4D, and you can email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving us a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, don't try to do too many different jobs at once. The quality of the end product will inevitably suffer.